Hello, this is Sunday Starter. I'm Andy Mangum. Today we're looking at the seventh Sunday of Eastertide in year C. Our goal in these podcasts is to look at one Sunday in the lectionary each week and to take one of the texts and do a, a, a brief overview of that text, something that you can listen to on your normal commute uh, so that you can redeem the drives, for the commutes are evil. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. In this reading, Paul encounters a slave girl who annoys him with free but incessant announcement of his intentions. Upon exercising the demon from her, Paul and Silas are arrested, flogged, and imprisoned. Singing song, hymns and spiritual songs and praying in the jail in Philippi, they are miraculously released, the jailer, feeling, fearing the consequences of allowing the prisoners to escape, moves to take his own life, only to have Paul reassure him that they are all present and accounted for. In response, the jailer and his household are baptized into faith. Paul and Silas are released the following day, and they return to Lydia's house to encourage their fellow believers. A rudimentary narrative analysis would say that a story is made up of four parts. Setting, that's time, place, and sense of time character and characterization, the way the, the different individuals and, and groups are characterized in the story. Narration, that is the images, figurative language, tone, and voicing that's used to tell the story. And plot, the sequence of events as they are narrated. So we got these four characteristics, the setting, character, narration, and plot. And we can use this basic structure to get a sense of this story's many moving parts. Then just consider the story, the characters encountered in the story. We have the slave girl, her owners, Paul, and his traveling companion, who the girl calls these men. Uh, the authorities or the magistrates, the the uh, jailer, the fellow prisoners, the jailer's household, the police messengers that come from the magistrates, and finally Lydia, who were into who we were introduced to earlier in chapter sixteen. Most of these characters are largely flat. That is to say, uh, they are not presented with multidimensional uh, texture and, and qualities. Uh, perhaps the most interesting character from just a character analysis perspective are the magistrates, who on the one hand succumb to pressure of businessmen and mob rule and treat Paul and Silas unjustly and illegally, but the next day have a sudden change of mind and send for their release. And when they cannot get them to quietly go out of town, they acquiesce to Paul and Silas's demand to apologize to them. Under the heading of setting, uh, consider the number of locations the story passes through. There's the place of prayer in verse 16. Uh, we were also introduced to this place of prayer in verse 13. We have the marketplace in 19. And though I think we should pay attention to the economic implications of this event and the economic implications of the gospel, we should not make too much of the quote-unquote marketplace setting here. Marketplaces were places where children played. They were places of common meeting, a place where people went to look for work. They were the shared space. We have the prison and the inner prison and the feet fastened in stocks. In verse 24, you have whatever is outside of all of that. In verse 30, we have uh, the jailer's house, or rather in verse 33, we have the jailer's house. The out comes in verse 30. And, uh, and then back to the prison and finally to Lydia's house in verse 40. It is something of a there and back story, going into prison, even to the deepest cell of the prison, with feet fastened, and then back out again, 
only the starting place and the ending place are really not the same. It starts at the established place of prayer and ends in Lydia's house. Perhaps that's suggestive of a pattern that, uh, that the old patterns of religiosity are giving way to the new forms of church, namely the house church. Uh, I, I think more important to this story than, than that potential implication is the importance of hospitality, which takes place in locations. Paul is given hospitality by the Philippian jailer and then later by Lydia. And, and this is a pattern in the book of Acts. I think we've not paid enough attention to the acts of hospitality in the book of Acts. Um, Beverly Gaventa wrote in a book uh, on the conversions in the New Testament, and, and she writes about a different act of hospitality that we find in verse 10, or chapter 10, rather, in, in Peter's uh, movement to Cornelius' house. And she says, by, by means of the issue of hospitality, Luke demonstrates that the conversion of the first Gentile re required the conversion of the church as well. Indeed, Luke's account uh, in Luke's account, Peter's conversion, Peter and company undergo a change that is more wrenching by far than the change experienced by Cornelius. And that, that statement, though it's about a different text, has served as something of a paradigm shift for me to consider. What does it mean for us to be the recipients of hospitality? How does that change us? And what might the hermeneutic implications be for the church to consider that we enter spaces where we are welcomed? Setting also consists of time markers. There are not as many temporal markers, but there are a few. One day, and starts off with the text, we assume this is the Sabbath day because they were going to the place of prayer. Uh, the slave girl's pursuit of Paul at all continued for many days, verse 18. The spirit came out of her that very hour, also verse 18. The miracle release happened about midnight. And verse 33 says, at the same hour of the night, the jailer brought Paul and Silas into his own home. The final interactions with the magistrate occur once morning comes, verse 35. I'm not sure what we do with all these timestamps, but it is notable that Luke gives them to us. From the frame of narration, there's not a whole lot to say. There is this interesting uh, thing that happens in the very first verses of our story. Uh, in the English, we, uh, the, the girl is identified as a slave girl. And then later on, just a few verses later, uh, the girl herself identifies Paul and company as, quote, slaves of the Most High. And that may seem like a, an intentional verbal linking. It shows up in English, actually, more than it shows up in Greek. In Greek, the girl is uh, paradiske, uh, which is a term that, that refers to pais, a girl, uh, and it's a diminutive of that. And the, the missionaries are described with the, a more common word for servant, doulos. Um, and they, they don't really share a lot in common. They don't belong to a semantic field. But, you know, make of it what you will, that she is a slave and she identifies slaves of the Most High. In terms of plot, the events of this story overlap each other in a daisy chain of cause and effect. The people attend to their prayer life, which prompts the girl to single them out for a declaration, which annoys Paul, and which you know, so, so he casts the spirit out of her. This causes her master owners to seize Paul and Silas and bring them before the magistrates in the marketplace. There is a, a bit of an aside to, to be made here in the discussion of the mob that surrounds them. 
Axe has at least one other significant riot involving the potential loss of income. And uh, in chapter 19, verses 23 and following, there are artisans who are upset about the proclamation because they make a good deal of money crafting idols. And so there's a mob riot there. Uh, there's a mob riot here, and that due process less trial leads to a flogging imprisonment, which leads to the prayer service, which leads to the miraculous release, which leads to the, the which leads to the jailer's suicidal ideation and his relief and his baptism. The miraculous release of Paul and Silas evokes the stories earlier in, in Acts 12 of Peter's miraculous escape. However, in this case, Paul and Silas remain in uh, and save the jailer's life. They remain in jail and, and save the jailer's life, and they baptize him. It's not clear to me, at least, what keeps the other prisoners from escaping. Maybe um, they were converted by Paul and Silas's preaching, and they decide to, to be law-abiding. We, we don't know. The cause and effect daisy chain, if, if you like that metaphor, breaks down with the decision to release Paul and Silas the next morning. It's not clear what motivated their change of heart. Uh, it is at this point in the story that Paul chooses to disclose he is a Roman citizen. And I believe this may be the first reference in the book of Acts to Paul's Roman citizenship. In Acts 22, 25 through 29, he gets out of being flogged by appealing to his Roman citizenship. And it plays a, a role in uh, his final arrest and his transport uh, to Rome. Uh, it should be noted that Luke tells us of a developing Christian community forming at Lydia's house. And while the conflict averse among us, people like me who don't like conflict, we might think of Paul being unnecessarily confrontational here. Uh, had he complied with their request, however, that he leave town quietly, there would have been a message sent to that early Christian community that they could be bullied into silence or worse, that the imprisonment of the person who led them to Christ was justified. So what do we do with the story? Well, I'm not sure. There is indeed a lot going on. But for me personally, I can't get past the little girl. Luke tells us that Paul exercised the demon from her because he was annoyed. I'm not sure, but I think this may be the one miracle in the New Testament that is conducted for self-serving ends of the miracle worker, just because he was annoyed. Paul does not respond to her with compassion. Her owners direct their anger to Paul and Silas, and we can only hope they didn't also take it out on this girl who could no longer earn money for them. We might try to make some mental health explanation for how her supposed gift manifests itself, which I think would be a mistake. We should not attempt to diagnose people from the distance of 2,000 years. But we don't know. Maybe she was a really observant girl who knew how to read people as much as the future. That hunch, of course, doesn't explain what happened to her when Paul cast the, the uh, spirit out of her. We simply do not know. Gail O'Day has written in the Woman's Bible Commentary, this comes from page 311 of that really helpful resource. She said, once Paul silenced the slave girl, she is forgotten. The focus of the story shifts to the loss of income for her owners because of her silence. The slave girl vanishes completely from the purview of the narrative. What becomes of her life after Paul silences her divination? Is she returned to the slave market once her economic value to her owners disappears? The slave girl is only a commodity to her owners, and she is treated no better by Paul and the story itself. Luke shows no interest in the slave girl 
as a human being. Mistreated by the business men, dismissed by Paul, forgot by Luke. Who is left in the story to take up her cause? Well, on this Sunday, it could be you, and it could be me, it could be us, the church. Maybe we can take up her cause. We need to show some grace, I think, to Luke. He tells our story. He tells a story to us, but he tells a story on behalf of us. And certainly uh, we see in this girl who has been mistreated and treated as disposable by our culture, we see in her face the countless men and women and children who suffer because of human trafficking around the world, who are caught in cycles of patriarchy. Perhaps this would be a good uh, Sunday to highlight the work of Malala Yousafzai, a Pakistani teenager and advocate, youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Maybe we confront the way that Greta Thornburg's uh, message has been co-opted and misshapen by our culture, or we make reference to Amanda Gorman, the poet laureate, uh, 2012 inaugural poem author. Of course, Malala, Greta, and Amanda need not be co-opted by us simply because we're trying to make a contemporary connection to the ancient text. Perhaps the best we can do is to acknowledge what we and Luke uh, have in common. We are not so different. He wrote for us. He also speaks on our behalf. I do not think it is disrespectful of Scripture to say that Luke, as our church's representative, as one of us, that Luke made a mistake by not telling the rest of her story, of not fully acknowledging her identity or valuing her as a fully authentic child of God. She is not given the same place in the story as Cornelius or Tabitha or even Lydia, and we were wrong to do that to her. We cannot go back now and fill in the blanks of history. We can confess and we can repent and we can open our eyes to those who are damaged by cruel economic systems and by people's attempts to use others. And we can seek to end the pattern of cruelty, patterns that we have tolerated and we've benefited from for far too long. Well, that's just an overview of Luke, or excuse me, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Uh, I hope it's been beneficial to you. I uh, hope that this has given you a chance to redeem the drive for the commutes are evil. And God bless you, my friends.